Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Vladislav Lilic, a doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University. Today's episode features Dr. Leonidas Lance Milonakis, and the two of us will be discussing his captivating first book, Piracy in the Eastern Mediterranean, Maritime Marauders in the Greek and Ottoman Aegean, published by Bloomsbury earlier this year. Using rich sets of Ottoman, Greek, and other archival sources, Dr. Milonakis shows that far from ending with the introduction of European powers to the region around the year 1830, Aegean piracy continued unabated into the 20th century. The book considers how changes in global economic patterns, imperial power struggles, ecological phenomena, shifting maritime trade routes, revisions in international maritime law can explain the fluctuations in violence at sea. Dr. Milonakis, it is my pleasure to welcome you to New Books in History. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me about your work. I'm glad to be here. As is customary on our channel, I will start us off by asking how your intellectual and research trajectories had led you to write piracy in the Eastern Mediterranean. Yeah, so I guess uh, it really, going back to undergrad, um, I remember taking a course um, that was like supposed to be like one of those courses that like, you know, gives you like a taste of grad school, right? And you had to do like more advanced research. And in that course, I remember coming across the research that basically talked about um, research from John Coliopoulos called Brigands with a Cause that talked about the role of bandits in nation building, uh, in particular in Greece. And this uh, initial branch of research kind of like, you know, made me a little bit interested in that's kind of like what I entered grad school thinking about. Um, so entering grad school um, early on, I needed to actually take some um, courses on the early modern period, uh, even though I was like, int- I was more interested in the 19th century, but I, um, for like a breadth of knowledge, they wanted us to like kind of look into the early modern period. So um, unable to like, you know, initially do what I, what I was like really thinking about with like, in terms of like the banditry and the revolutionary period and like looking at the period where you have both modern Greece and the Ottoman Empire um, at the same time and being, being able to look at those national those issues of like national development, I started to look at the, uh, issues of piracy, ransom, and captivity, uh, and looking across at these networks across the Mediterranean. So I wound up doing two little research papers uh, on that, uh, one kind of more general on those networks and another specifically on uh, the case of Rhodes in uh, the late 1700s. Uh, which was at that point supposed to be considered like the the late period of like Ottoman piracy. Um, so piracy was supposed to have ended, um, according to that research, uh, it, from scholars like Molly Green, Josh White, uh, and a number of others, um, around the period of the Greek Revolution. Uh, part of it doing with the Greek Revolution, a bigger part of it being with the French colonization of Algiers, mm-hmm. ending Barbary piracy. So with that in mind, I entered the Ottoman archives in the summer of 2013 and just uh, started poking around doing some like preliminary searching uh, just to see what would come up. And I, you know, searched up the the Ottoman term for pirate, Corsan, 
And when I did that, I actually noticed that piracy continued in the Ottoman case, like well uh, past its supposed end date in 1830 and all the way going into the 20th century. So um, that then like uh, signaled to me that like, hey, this should really be the focus of my research. I'm able to like study piracy in the period that I'm really interested in the 19th century in the context of Greek and Ottoman state building kind of in parallel with each other. So I created my research proposal uh, and I managed to uh, be able to then go do research in Greece. So I had uh, like a set of the Ottoman documents that I needed already. So I started hunting in the Greek archives and really the archive, I was hoping to find archives like journals and stuff to find like more daily life stuff. That's extremely hard to find. Uh, So I wound up uh, using top-down state sources uh, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Greece uh, turned out to be another uh, wealthy uh, source of information uh, for my research. Interestingly, the book draws on recent advances in digital humanities. So you conducted serial analysis of what appears to be massive source base. Uh, Would you be so kind to tell us more about your method? Yeah, absolutely. So basically, having found both of um, the two main sets of documents, right, one from the Ottoman Prime Ministry Archives, also known as the Bashbakanluk, and the other from the Greek Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I basically set up two different like Excel spreadsheets and uh, kind of like organized things by date, of course. And like in in both cases, I needed to kind of be able to like translate the date from Hijri and Rumi and sometimes. Uh, um, um, Julian, uh, and in the Greek case, from Julian to um, Gregorian, mm-hmm. right? So I did that, had like a little, uh, made a little descriptor of all of those, made a little note on like where the piracy was taking place and like, you know, some basic notes on it. Uh, and uh, of course, like a link to the documents so that way when I could like, you know, um, check it myself and go like deeper into the details of any particular one. But then w- once I did that, right, once I created like a database, I was able to then, um, you know, just create some basic charts mm-hmm. and go through it. Uh, one thing that I did uh, in order to like make the data a little bit uh, cleaner in one of my uh, charts on the Ottoman, no, in the Greek archives was... Um, to make to be, keep from making like the data too spiky, I basically did uh, what's a pretty common technique in data analysis of just kind of like smoothing the curve of taking like a three-year average. It could be like a five-year average or whatever, depending on the context. For my case, the like three-year average worked out best. Uh, that makes the um, chart a lot more uh, easy to interpret. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And you forcefully argue that modern state and nation-building processes in the Mediterranean altered the nature of maritime violence. How had piracy worked in the region before the 1800s, let's say? Yeah, so before the 1800s, there was an entire system of ransom networks that were set up. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, um, piracy, there were there are different forms of piracy. Um, with um, there's, of course, like, you know, the kind of like, you know, marauders outside of any state uh, back then and in the 19th uh, century. Uh, that's like kind of common where like, you know, these people are just like raiding and they're only working for themselves. and They don't really care about anything. Uh, in the um, early modern period, you have a uh, it's really common for the uh 
Corsairs and privateers, which are basically the same thing, are really prevalent. And what those are, are maritime marauders that are under the direction, under the loose direction of the state, I would say. So there are basically pirates that have been like co-opted by the state, but, you know, are in some cases able to kind of like, they're, they're a little bit more loosely controlled, but they are controlled by the state in theory. Now, in the case of like, say, the, the um, North African Corsairs, they oftentimes referred to as the Barbary Corsairs. Um, they, for example, wound up being like very loosely controlled after a certain point. Josh White's research goes into this and uh, they would essentially wind up even conducting their own diplomatic relations. And so I, I guess um, uh, with the prevalence of these societies uh, that were able to kind of like, you know, conduct piracy, capture people and then and uh, like do this kind of like semi-legitimately uh, or with like, you know, some vein of legitimacy, there were ransom networks that were set up to be able to facilitate the uh, payment of ransom uh, and to return people home. So what this meant then was that there was an entire economy set up um, by states or religious yeah. entities or religious institutions such as like Vakifs in the Ottoman context that would be able to pay for the ransom of individuals. So there would be like middlemen set up where like, you know, if, you know, your neighbor was, if you're, if you're like, you know, cousin was uh, stolen by Corsairs, you'd have a place that you could go to to pay them to be able to like buy their freedom. Mm-hmm. And that is something that didn't exist in that stopped to exist in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're moving into the 19th century and the Europeanists the world over are marking the 200th anniversary of the Greek War of Independence. Uh, how does your study add to our understanding of that critical historical event? Yeah, so, I mean, really the Greek uh, uh, War of Independence is a um, very transitional period um, for many reasons, right? Um, so in the case of piracy, um, there, there's a good amount of scholarship that's been done on piracy in the Greek revolutionary period. And one thing that my research, uh, tries to do, um, one of my chapters deals with the Greek revolutionary period. And one thing I try to do is I try to take, I try to like zoom out a bit from just Greece and like kind of look at North Africa at the same time. So I'm looking at the relations between uh, Greece, Egypt, Algiers, and like to a lesser degree Tunis. And basically what I'm seeing is um, in the, these uh, North African societies, like there is kind of like a dialogue going on about actually like using some of this rhetoric about like human rights that we hear talked about a lot in the European context of Europeans using like human rights as a rhetoric of like intervention. You hear Algerian uh, sources talking about using human rights to be able to intervene on behalf of um, uh, Muslims in Crete, for example. Interesting. And, And following up on this, did piracy allow you to gain further insights into the nature of uh, the Tanzimat, the troubled effort at Ottoman imperial reform and consolidation? I, I would say that like the, the, the policies that are like passed during the Tanzimat don't like the, themselves don't directly to relate to piracy, but like there are other things that are going on, right? So the Tanzimat is kind of like in the immediate aftermath of the Greek War of Independence mm-hmm. in the period of the birth of this new state, and most importantly, in the period of like no longer having uh, these privateers, right? Mm-hmm. 
I think that the bigger political change than the Tanzimat for the for the conversation of piracy um, is actually kind of the change to um, a more it's more like the military reforms that began under Sultan Selim the Third and really were um, kind of like brought forth by Mahmoud the Second. And those were to basically move away from irregular forces and towards a more uh, modern standard like military force kind of regulated by the state. And, you know, on, of course, you have the, the auspicious incident, for example, with uh, getting rid of the Janissaries that happened during the revolution, but also the, um, you know, the, colon- the colonization of Algiers, for example, and like kind of the, the ending of the corsairing society there is really, it really kind of, the, the conjunction of those two allowed the Ottoman Empire to like kind of switch to more regular land and sea forces. Of course, they still wound up using irregular forces throughout the 19th, uh, 19th century, but like their, their main force could be kind of portrayed as like this modern uh, controlled, regulated um, military. And, and enter international law and global economic forces. Um, how did great power interventions and economic processes taking place far from the eastern corner of the Mediterranean reshape, reshape piracy in the region around the 1850s, the Crimean War? Yeah. So one thing that you have um, throughout the 19th century is like the, uh, the presence of these um, Western uh, warships, in particular British warships that are just like always like circu- uh, circling and they're involved in a lot of the cases of piracy that I come across uh, to a lesser degree. France is there as well, um, but, you know, still relatively prevalent. Um, and of course, like uh, the Habsburgs are, are involved occasionally too. So um, they are basically, they're trying to, they have like this like colonial mission that's going on, right? Uh, Britain actually has some territories nearby, has the unit, the Ionian islands. They're kind of a British protectorate at this time period. And of course they're interested in expanding like colonization uh, throughout the region, right? Or where they can like here and there. So part of their claim of legitimacy for being in the region is to be able to protect trade, protect international trade and particularly their own trade. Uh, and by, to do this, they need to be able to suppress piracy. So um, for that like um, foreign intervention, what you have is these British tri- uh, ships are there and they're, especially in the 1850s after, like, in, the, in the 1860s, like especially after the Crimean War, there's this ban on privateering that was initiated. Uh, so already the practice of privateering had kind of fallen out by like the 1830s, but it was formal, formally made illegal, uh, like globally, uh, because most of the world signed some exceptions were there, like the United States, uh, that, um, you know, privateering was no longer supposed to be allowed. So this includes like, you know, many types of like irregular naval actions. So there's actually a case where we have a uh, British uh, patrol ship, uh, but by uh, captain by uh, Captain Hobart at the time, who winds up later becoming an Ottoman uh, vice admiral. 
but at this point, he's a British captain, and he sees that like okay, there's reports of like this like you know pirate ship like circling uh, this one island off like southwest Anatolia, and we have actually the the crown prince is coming. <laughs> Uh, so we need to be able to like, you know, really show like we need to make things secure, but we also need to like, you know, we don't want reports of pirates going on while we have royalty visiting the region. So basically he comes up with a plan to be able to like disguise his uh, like, you know, to the capture to get a ship, disguise it as a pirate ship and sail around with Brit- with like a British naval crew as pirates. So this is basically privateering at this point. Uh, so this plan actually goes a little bit haywire at some point, and because the Ottoman Navy sees a pirate ship circling their seas, and they capture them, attack them, and start torturing them as if they were pirates, because they were disguised as pirates. Uh, so Hobart then goes in and just... Uh, you know, starts yelling at the <laughs> Ottomans, like, what are you doing? Uh, so eventually the Ottomans then like back, like back off, right? Uh, because they do not want to cause an incident that would like cause the British to kind of like bring warships or attack them or cause just a diplomatic episode. Uh, but really like here we have like, you know, the British that are kind of like ignoring a pretty recently, ca- uh, a pretty recently made uh, major law which is like the ban on privateering. So um, now in terms of, you asked about the economy as well, yes. correct? Right. So in terms of the economy, one major um, finding about the, um, the uh, rates of piracy is, has to do with the economy. So earlier, like those military reforms that passed and uh, different levels of funding fleets and building up war fleets uh, actually, kind of wound up not having too big of an impact on like the levels of piracy that were occurring in the Mediterranean um, until the economy improved. So, um, in um, the eighteen by the eighteen seventies, you uh, have the uh, widespread of this uh, aphid called uh, phylloxera that. It winds up destroying the French vineyards and vineyards elsewhere throughout Europe, like Italy. Like it, it pretty much destroys most of European uh, wine production, and this makes it so that way the only places that can uh, produce wine are in the Eastern Mediterranean, so like Greece and Western Anatolia. Um, so the uh, local uh, there is an entire economic shift to, in this region to try to take advantage of that. In Greece, for example, you have the creation of like the agricultural bank that then tries to like fund, uh, give uh, like in, uh, infuse a lot of capital into society to be able to allow them to switch over to producing this uh, type of grape called the Zanti currant. Um, so with uh, that, like the economy actually has this crazy boom for a long time because there's essentially like a Aegean monopoly on wine production, which is a very popular product. Um, so this causes actually like the, the most significant downshift in piracy over the 19th century that we see. And when the European uh, vineyards recover, then you actually see like piracy start to like rise up a little bit in the region again. So, like, the economy is a very important element. And the reason for this is, of course, that 
you know, piracy is a crime of people that are uh, trying to make money, but it's a crime that's very dangerous, mm-hmm. right? So if you can make money in a more legitimate means, then you're going to, you'd rather like grow uh, grapes that you can sell like 10 times what their normal value is rather than like risk your life on a ship at sea being hunted down. And, like you might capture, you might capture some loot, you might not, you know. Mm-hmm. And you end the narrative with the 1897 Greek-Ottoman War and the place that piracy played in it. Uh, did the historical episode represent Marauder's swan song, as it were? How did piracy fit these early 20th century systems of total warfare and, and military mobilization? Yeah, so really what you see is... Um, I, I would say that like by... That, that the incident of piracy being used during that war um, is, yeah, it, it, it's not the very final episode because in the epilogue, I go into like a few like little uh, like things here and there um, that might be um, raised, but really like it's kind of like emblematic of piracy in that like, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century, where it's like very hard to track down. It's, um, kind of being used by the state, kind of not. Um, really, actually, um, well, it is being used by the state. Like, so, like, it, for Greece, like, the, the, the prevalence of, the, the presence of these pirate ships is useful because it, like, creates another opportunity to weaken the Ottoman security apparatus. Interesting. And you discuss these these hegemonic, broader hegemonic discourses of power and and mentioned barbary civilization, rogue states, progress. Over the course of the 19th century in the region that you're looking at, how does piracy fit into those discursive spaces? And is there change over time uh, in how people are, are, well, conceptualizing piracy as a historical phenomenon? Yeah. So in terms of like the, the rogue states, right, this is actually something that like um, Greece kind of like needs to deal with. Right. Mm-hmm. So Greece is actually um, like a, a state that's like, you know, pretty fresh and they need to deal like during the revolutionary period, they're deal, they use uh, Corsairs. Um, but then by and I guess like, you know, if you're talking about like a rogue state, um, like really within the Ottoman context, like during the revolutionary period, Greece is a rogue state, right? It's a, it's like you're literally rebels and rogues, uh, like a, a re- rebelling province, um, with like considered no legitimacy. And for that, like the, during that period, Greece, you know, utilizes these Corsairs and they, wind up actually like losing control of them, especially after Ibrahim Pasha winds up taking the Moria and the revolution seems like it's going to like fail. So most of these uh, Corsairs actually wind up like turning to piracy. They, the Greek revolutionary government loses control of them and they wind up attacking um, like allied ships. So once this happens, uh, this winds up kind of like getting the attention of like the Western fleet. And after Greece 
winds up um, kind of like switching its leadership from the Mavro Mihalis faction to uh, and Kapodistrias becomes the leader of revolutionary Greece. Then he actually winds up giving uh, the Western fleet the the green light to go and like actually attack and try to purge uh, these uh, Greek pirates, formerly revolutionaries. So Greece actually has this legacy that it needs to deal with um, that you see in the literature on banditry that the the literature on piracy is basically the same, where you have these revolutionaries that turn into bi- uh, bandits or pirates as things kind of go haywire, and the state loses control of them. So the state actually needs to uh, take a part in like suppressing them. So in the literature on banditry, you see like you know the state has to like wind up like fighting against and even uh, like jailing many uh, people that later become revolutionary heroes, and it's a similar. Uh, um, thing for uh, in the issue of piracy at sea because like piracy and banditry are basically two sides of the same coin. Um, there are some differences that uh, occur, uh, but like you know they're very uh, similar. So as you get later, as Greece becomes a, a internationally recognized state, it's still kind of it, it like officially uh, gets rid of uh, corsairing upon like formal independence. But it still uh, uses a um, like a lot of a similar th- uh, type of uh, maritime violence, and really what they wind up doing is um, very similar to uh, the filibustering that goes on in America. So what filibustering is is when a state funds um, when it funds uh, basically a violent group. Uh, but it doesn't like kind of like directly give them orders. Now this is like an inverse of corsairing, where the corsairs and privateers they're directed by the state, but they're not funded by the state. Corsairs and privateers get their uh, loot. They they kind of like use prizes to fund themselves. So filibusters, it's like the inverse of that. Um, so what they wind up doing is they they have like these society. They there's this like society called like the ethniki etheria the national society that basically people get funds and they use it to kind of like, in some cases, like in the 1866 rebellion in Crete, uh, they literally like get uh, ships and they try to like bring over weapons and rebels to be able to like fund rebellion in the Ottoman empire to kind of, again, uh, create a little bit of chaos. And hopefully uh, there's this like goal of union of like, kind of like, you know, taking that uh, territory after it's, kind of shown that the Ottomans can't govern it because, you know, they're not able to suppress piracy. So, um, yeah, the Ottomans actually, uh, you know, I remember before I mentioned Hobart, uh, Hobart, who mm-hmm. winds up becoming, who is a British captain, but winds up becoming a Ottoman admiral. So during this point, the Ottomans actually uh, hire him to come in and like help work their blockade against British, uh, against Greek, uh, like pirate, pirate and smuggling operations, I would say. Um, so the Ottoman empire is enforcing this blockade of Crete and Greece is trying to basically bypass to run the blockade to get weapons and, uh, essentially volunteer fighters over. Um, when, like, uh, basically, whenever an Ottoman ship catches a Greek a ship trying to do this, you have several incidents where you have like the Greek ship actually like actively fighting against the Ottoman ships and trying to escape. So this is the uh, this is what like makes it more piracy, right? 
Um, so Greece doesn't officially claim these ships, even though they're very obviously emanating from the Greek state. Uh, so one, so basically, a few times you see a Greek ship is able to kind of like it gets caught by the Ottoman blockade, but then it runs away into Greek waters, and then the Ottoman fleet. Uh, basically doesn't want to pursue them into Greek waters because then that might cause... like The Ottoman Empire at this period isn't at war with Greeks. The Cretan Revolution, is, the 1866-69 Cretan Revolution is like an internal affair with the Ottoman Empire. So it would like kind of like cause like a bit of a diplomatic incident for Ottoman ships to pursue a ship into Greece. Basically, they bring in Hobart, and Hobart, like the moment he... Um, like is given any sort of command he ignores the the possibility that that might cause a bit of a diplomatic incident uh, follows the ships to greece and just like stays there until he's able to get reinforcements and because he's not like actively fighting against like greek warships or anything and he is like fighting pirates that winds up working that gets him eventually a promotion to uh become the vice admiral where he does a terrible job <laughs> apparently <laughs> an interesting episode finally where has this project taken you uh, what are you currently working on yeah so um as i mentioned i'm uh, interested in the digital humanities uh, as i was wrapping this uh, project up in grad school i kind of like started attending some of these digital humanities workshops and working with other uh people that were interested in similar things so uh, you know it'd be interesting to be able to um, use digital humanities to like um, leverage tools like machine learning and natural language processing for uh, historical research. Now, one of the difficulties I found, especially with like 19th century research, is um, it's a, the, the really cool stuff that you can do with digital humanities, um, especially like lang language, natural language processing. It requires that you have like machine readable text, but it's like when you have like handwritten Ottoman Turkish documents or even like Greek documents, like they're, they're the it, it's very hard for it to have a, a computer be able to read those, right? There's like work that's been done in like the Latin language script, uh, in Latin language scripts to be able to like read English and French and Italian and whatever, and be able to kind of like turn that into like machine readable text. But that that research isn't really there yet for Ottoman and Greek text, so that makes it a bit harder. Um, but uh, uh, at this point, I've actually wound up uh, kind of taking like a bit of a step back from academia, but I still have two uh, incoming publications along the way. One is essentially a uh, version of Chapter 6 uh, on the 1897 uh, Greco-Ottoman War that's going to be coming out. And uh, the other is a, um, a paper that I co-authored uh, with Patricia Martins Marcos uh, on... Uh, slavery, gender, and human trafficking in a global context from 1700 to 1900. Fascinating. Cannot wait to uh, get my hands on, on those works as well. Uh, Dr. Milonakis, it was an immense pleasure uh, talking to you today. Thank you for joining New Books in History. Thank you for having me.